Now, with the mission of progressing anything while we wait for the special votes to be counted and for whatever coalition talks are already happening to perhaps pick up pace, we welcome political commentators Gareth Hughes and Ben Thomas. Uh, kia ora korua. welcome both. Kia ora morena. Morena. Gareth is a former Green MP, now works for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Aotearoa, no longer a member of any political party. Ben Thomas is a former National Government Press Secretary, a columnist and a Director of Public Affairs firm Capital. To the best of our knowledge, how are coalition talks progressing? It's understood they're mostly happening in Auckland to the degree they're happening at all. <coughs> Likely to be quite high level at this stage. What do you know, Ben Thomas? I, I know about as much as everybody who wasn't at uh, dinner at Winston Peters' place uh, the other night. Um, yeah, look, I mean, at, at this stage, you know, everyone's staying very tight-lipped about any discussions that are happening. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's any particular reason to doubt Christopher Luxon when he says that it's more about sort of, you know, bringing the teams together, kind of getting used to each other, sort of acclimatising after a, a pretty long, gruelling and at times, uh, you know, uh, pretty oppositional uh, campaign. Um, you know, just just getting everybody in the sort of in in in, in the room together, you know, or different rooms, and um, and and seeing you know how they can sort of talk together and work together. The chemistry, so to speak. Yeah, the chemistry. Except with 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 the exception that you know this is probably a bit more of a uh, you know this is less a love at first sight and more a, you know one of those thirty six questions you can ask to make anyone fall in love with you. But instead of like, do you like horror movies? It's you know, do you want to repeal the ninety? You know, do you want to restore ninety day trial periods? The other matter that may be under consideration or indications given this early is the structure of any governing arrangement, and this will get to. Uh, for ACT and for New Zealand First, whether they have any desire to uh, be part of a formal coalition, whether they want cabinet positions, um, the presumption is yes for ACT, uh, whether they um, uh, want to be part of a formal coalition or sit on the crossbenches um, with, with certain policy concessions, we just don't know. But is that the sort of high-level conversation likely happening at the moment? Uh, indications given, Ben? I think it's a little too early for that in the sense that we still don't know the final composition of Parliament. Um, Winston Peters keeps sort of intoning like a mantra, I'm the only one who knows maths. Um, And I I think that's a a pretty (laughs) strong indication that, you know, he's waiting to see what sort of leverage he has after Friday when the special votes are counted um, in terms of, you know, just by by what margin, if any, National Act and Act might be able to govern by themselves um, and to what extent they will be relying on him as, either as a buffer or as actually to get the majority. Um, and, I, and I think a lot depends on that. So looking ahead to those specials, Gareth, a couple of things to factor in. National typically loses one or two seats. There's a lot of debate about whether this this will be different this time. Half a million special votes. Only 15% are overseas voters. Um, it's often presumed to skew left because there's a lot of renters and people on the move or people signing up for the first time. But there are a growing number of reasons why people are not on the electoral roll, say, and, and not represented. Do we have any reason to believe that trend of advantaging the left and possibly a seat or two going from the right will be different this time? Well, it's been the case historically, but I, there's been some unique factors this time that I think questions that. You know, the, the COVID response, the international vote, which a lot of people assumed it was 100% of the specials. We know it's a smaller portion. 
on the the pro side for for Labour, maybe feeling optimistic that sort of late burst uh, that surged during the campaign, where maybe people voting on election day were a lot more sort of bullish about Labour and their their potential chances. Uh, so it's all up in the air, but we know how significant they've been historically. Uh, Jim Anderson and Helen Clark thought they'd formed a government in 1999. The specials. Resulted with the Greens entering Parliament, needing their numbers. Likewise, in 2014, Keith Audy had wrapped up the government with three agreements with the support parties, and after the specials, where National lost two votes, they needed those three parties. So it, it has thrown up shocks re- before. So I'm sure, depending on the status of the negotiations, no one will be signing on a dotted line until those specials have come in. Now, the other factor, I think, as things stand on election night, there's the modest majority for National Act, or no, they need, just remind me what, what its status is. Well, well, I believe yeah. it's one seat. One yeah, seat one majority. Six, 61 out of 121. Now, then we start getting really complicated because there's a by-election, but were that by-election to go the way it's anticipated, it'll make no difference overall. There'll be an extra seat, however, likely to go to the National MP. What might make it even more complicated uh, is whether there is a bigger overhang caused by Te Party Māori um, winning uh, electorate seats, more electorate seats even, than it has already. And that would push the number required up again and, and would get rid of that majority. Or, as we've said, National losing a seat even would, would, would flip it out. That word leverage, will that number be very significant to the leverage New Zealand First in particular brings? Absolutely. But it will be interesting what Christopher Luxon's approach is, because if he's looking at purchasing insurance, even if on Friday he knows that he's got the numbers with Act, you know, New Zealand First will be requiring a, a premium payment on that insurance. So I would not be surprised if he's working on the assumption, even if he have the numbers with Act, that he will have some form of governing relationship with New Zealand First. We know that razor-thin majority gives a huge amount of leverage to individual MPs. We have had a number of MPs leave their parties in the last parliament. So that strong, stable government, which he'll be so keen to to see, uh, I'm sure means he'll be negotiating. But, Ben, there's a difference between desiring it and needing to have it. Is there not? Yeah, yeah that's right, and, and that's the the price of the premium that uh, Gareth was talking about. Um, you know, the the pencils will be in, being sharpened in New Zealand first, depending on uh, what the margin is. If it's if they've got a margin of one, then you know you you, you need some. You, you know, the premium goes up. If they've got a margin of two, three, somehow uh, it goes it goes down. Act were pretty close to getting an extra seat on election night, um, so they would not need to really sort of outperform too much in the specials, perhaps, uh, to pick up an extra seat. National, on the other hand, we saw their early vote was significantly higher than their vote on the day. Um, not, not clear what that shows, whether they lost momentum or whether they, whether undecided voters sort of broke a different way than they sort of expected. But, um, you know, it, it, looks, it looks hard to see how they would, you know, how they would get that kind of majority. But yeah, look, the, the the leverage issue is is the most crucial. You know, if if they need if they need Peters for the numbers, then essentially he's you know essentially it's uh, it's three equal parties as far as Peters is concerned negotiating. Do you see any particular policy barriers uh, that would become problematic? And, and I don't want to sort of get caught up in bottom lines. Um, there's the question of the referendum. Um, that uh, Act wants on the principles of the treaty and um, of course someone's pointed out New Zealand First says there's no such thing as the principles of the treaty and National certainly seeing it as being a, um, a, a disadvantageous for, for, for the country at this time so there's that kind of stuff but then there's 
there's the state of the books. There's National's desire for tax cuts. Uh, there's Act saying we can't have tax cuts of this size. There's the spending that might be attached to satisfying a third party like New Zealand First. Do you see anything that's really going to get gnarly, Gareth? Oh, absolutely. And it's so much easier to forecast the orbit of two bodies. But as she should lose sci-fi book shows, <laughs> three body presents a three body problem. It's impossible to forecast. And there are some areas where the three agree, <coughs> uh, some, perhaps on you know, the treaty and co-governance. But I think you know, from National's perspective, that's not really a, a divisive conversation they would really want to, to see. There's areas like tax that already act as sort of sending out the signal that we need to be slowing that down for sort of uh, because of the state of cuts, you mean. Tax cuts, sorry. Mm-hmm. And then you've got things like the age of superannuation, which New Zealand First would like to scotch. Things like uh, the foreign buyers ban that National wants, but New Zealand First doesn't want. So if, that, if that, that might let National get out of jail free card, frankly, given the the views many have on on the numbers that that's likely to bring in many economists, but it would leave them with a further hole in their um, in in their fiscal plan. Yeah, that's right. And there might be some policies that now are frankly untenable that they can blame on a support partner. But we know from New Zealand First history of negotiating you know, multiple agreements over the years that they will be negotiating with National and not with ACT. This is what happened in 2017 where Winston uh, considered it effectively a green labour relationship that he was negotiating with. So there will come a point where ACT will see what New Zealand First is potentially negotiating and vice versa. And that's where it could get tricky. Ben? Yeah, look, there are there are clear examples of where ACT and New Zealand First, for instance, are pulling in different directions. Um, you know, but both of them have talked about looking at different sectors and sort of get it, getting into you know examining competition and efficiency in different sectors. But uh, you know, New Zealand First very much with a sort of regulatory approach. Sort of, what can we do to regulate it? act very much in a sort of what can we do to get rid of regulation. So D versus re-regulatory approaches are kind of a, a, a tug of war there. Um, spending, you know, we've seen in the past New Zealand First, that's how it, that's how it's achieved a lot of its promises and its deliveries in past governments is, is you know, is larding, larding their recipients with money. Um, you know, the Provincial Growth Fund. Um, that's going to be much harder to sort of give away as a bargaining chip uh, you know, with the state of the books as they are now. And also if you wanted to deliver tax cuts so yeah look certainly there will be tensions and and the you know the the real issue will be sort of uh you know how national manages that in the center being sort of pulled in uh, both directions that first couple of months if they do get uh and we presume they will but you know if they do get a government together uh this is the uh, two things stand out uh one is nationals 100 day ambitions uh, 100 Days Plan, which has been couched fairly cautiously as starting things rather than finishing things. And the other is the prospect of this mini-budget that the um, incoming Prime Minister, incoming presumed Finance Minister, uh, alluded to. I, I, I'm interested in that, Ben. Is, is is that a chance to back down on some stuff that, you know, the, the DFU or whatever else is going to say doesn't add up? Is it going to be a chance to say we've managed to save our 6% of savings and X number of agencies? Why were they keen to get that into the public mindset before the election? Uh, in terms of the, the mini-budget? Yeah, there being one. There likely to be one. Uh, I, I think, you know, part of it is sort of stamping their authority and, and being able to show, you know, once you put in their sort of assumptions, you know, you can 
you can immediately announce an outcome which is you know a better projection you know and you can sort of you can r- almost uh, run that up as as kind of uh, runs on the board in the same way that Grant Robertson did when he sort of you know made his sort of spending cut promises very very close to the preview um, and so you know I think I think that will be part of it the other thing is if they want fast action on tax that obviously needs to proceed uh, you know the budget itself next year um, so you know it, it's a bit of a chance for for a reset um, and you know sort of you know let everybody know that uh, you know think that things really have changed and potentially doing things like removing the regional fuel tax in Auckland which you know takes 11.5 cents off a, off a litre so there's immediate things that they could do but look the, the timelines getting for the parliamentary sitting calendar are very tight the amount of days they can actually sit this year there's the spectre of potentially parliament going back in January to go through it so uh, it could be quite a period of urgency in the house what do you make of that 100-day action plan? Uh, how much of it is, um, has been couched with plenty of outs? Oh, well, I think that's very much the, the, the framing of it. The, it's uh, expectation management, starting the repeal or the stopping or the legislating for whatever the policies are. It's pretty modest. When you actually look at the whole paper, you know, and mostly it's sort of repealing a bunch of stuff that, that Labour has done, there isn't much building. Almost like you know Chris Hipkins' policy bonfire. There wasn't much actually built on the ashes of the bonfire. But interesting, I saw Gary Taylor today uh, in newsroom talking about the Resource Management Act. I mean, this is massive. We've spent four years as a country going through this very complicated, very technical process and starting the process to repeal that. I understand the RMA old legislation is still on the book, so it can be repealed. But look, going back to, to zero, and again, and restarting this process is... Uh, um, just more uncertainty for the country and our councils and our businesses. So how they square that circle where ACT wants this sort of unregulated free-for-all, New Zealand First wants to go back to the 70s with the Town and Country Planning Act, uh, National want, want something else, is going to be a real difficulty and real uncertainty for, for, for people in the economy. What do you see out of that first 100 days, including the out clauses, uh, Ben? Yeah, that's right. So there were 41 items on the... Um, Hundred days of action. Uh, I think about um, what about ten or eleven of them are starting or beginning or um, improving. Um, they'll, they'll need about, including the repeals, they'll need about between sort of a dozen, a dozen and a half bills uh, introduced into the House. Um, well, I, I think that's doable. Some of them are reasonably sort of modest ones, uh, or, or, there, or there have been examples in the past. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take too much to, you know, reinstate 90-day trials. That won't keep the Parliamentary Council office busy for long. Um, so, look, I, I, I think it's all reasonably achievable. Um, you know, there, there will be the question, you know, there's things like Three Waters where it's sort of just kind of kicking it to touch. It's sort of, you know, putting that, put it, putting the onus back on the councils. But, but you do achieve those things within the hundred days, uh, you know, which probably say to your supporters, um, you know, look, I, there, there's a few areas where there is, you know, I, I just did a sort of quick exercise of, you know, where is there agreement across all three parties on on the hundred days? It's repealing the water entities uh, part of three waters, repealing the Māori Health Authority. Um, Repealing the Ute tax, well, that's New Zealand First haven't put that in their manifesto, but they opposed it in government. Restoring 90-day trials, abolishing fair pay agreements, again, New Zealand First silent on that, but something they opposed in government. Um, you know, some synergies, uh, New Zealand First want funding to remove gang tattoos, so... You know, there might be some there's some opportunities for sort of complementary policies there. 
This is interesting because just listening to that list, it's repeal, repeal, repeal. Can we talk about the Greens, Gareth? I, I mentioned in an earlier commentary segment that it was like on Saturday, on that Saturday night there was some you know kind of exhilaration at some of the um, party, you know, the festive parties. Like you know we we won this, we picked up this, we picked up that seat. Understandable excitement. Uh, and then there was Marama Davidson and James Shaw, and Marama was all excited, and, and James looked like he was at a funeral because he was responsible for some of that legislation that's gone through. Where are the Greens left now with the biggest caucus they've had, but out of power? Well, we're still yet to see they're stuck at 14. Uh, they had 14 MPs in 11 in 2014. So for them, I, they'll be hoping to grow to 15. And this was sort of the, the bittersweet night, I think, for the Greens. You know, Chloe and Marama looked triumphant and sort of these rah-rah speeches. And James did look a little bit sanguine. Um, because, you know, they were aiming for 17, 18 MPs and on early polling that was looking in that direction. And, of course, they're now outside of government. But I think, again, you know, an optimistic take is that they've survived the curse of the minor party. Throughout MMP history since 96, every support party has either disappeared from Parliament entirely, like New Zealand First on a couple of occasions, or have been massively weakened, like United Future, Te Party Māori uh, previously. So they've not only survived that curse, they've actually managed to, to grow their vote. Uh, they've managed to grow their electorate MPs, which is this uh, launching pad opportunity for them, which... It's almost like a redo of 2014 uh, and 2011 where, where they grew, but of course they, they grew at Labour's expense. Yeah. And this I, is the trap they've always been in doing the, well when Labour does poorly. It's the trap, and I've already heard people saying about how they'll supersede Labour, and I thought, God, we've been there before, I'm sorry, <laughs> we've really been there before, and then Labour came in with a majority government. But you just said something important. If they hold all of those electorate seats, I, I remember Jeanette um, Simons winning Coromandel in... 99? We were talking about it earlier. And, um, you know, that was seen as you've got an anchor point. Well, it was a backup in case you didn't make the 5% threshold, but it was also seen as, a, as an anchor point. Difficult seat to hold, of course, in such a diverse electorate. Um, but, you know, three Wellington seats now on the night to the Greens, plus Auckland Central. If they are looking at a long-term rebalancing of their position on the left, how important those electorate seats as part of that story? Well, it's important in a small sense in terms of the resources, the community connections, you know, you go cut the ribbons and do all the school prize givings. But more importantly, I think it's sort of the credibility and sort of the narrative the party's trying to tell about itself, that it's, you know, it's not just a protest party. It's not just a small 5% party always skirting on that threshold. It's a party that really has aspirations to grow and become a proper medium party that's closer in size to Labour. And, you know, if I was a green strategist today, I'd be urging them to, to keep up that momentum and look for other electorates to grow. They were competitive in Mount Albert. I think they had a chance to win one of the in Dunedin North uh, if the former Mayor Aaron Hawkins had stood for the Greens this time. So they've got other opportunities to grow as well. And you know, internally within the party, the vibe is very sort of jubilant and um, very positive. They do see this as an opportunity to, to grow. But you just made the point, when they're at their strongest, it's often because they've, they've taken off Labour. And, and I guess, let's just touch on this um, briefly, Ben, it's not your uh, uh, party, primary party of interest, I must say, but um, you know, wh- where does this leave Labour going? It's bled to the left, some point to the ruling out of a wealth tax of some sort ever, as being the moment that really took off. Mm-hmm. It's bled to the left again, as has happened in the past, uh, and yet it didn't win in the middle, trying to compete with National with, with the bonfire. You know, wh- what are your observations of the party that really? Came out with the least, I guess, overall on on Saturday night. Two oh, weeks yeah. back. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it was an election where everyone was sort of a winner except Labour. Um, you know, the, obviously the, the doomsday scenario for them is also the most likely, which is what we've seen of both the major parties once they've gone into opposition after periods in government uh, over the last... Um, what, 15 years, um, which is that sort of um, descent into into Nekine, factional infighting, uh, you know, playing out of personal ambitions uh, at the the expense of the party, you know, a a sort of monomaniacal focus on themselves rather than the electorate. Um, You know, look, I think think my colleague Neil Jones last week said that Labour have you know have really got to do a lot of introspection and not just leap on the first sort of a lily pad or whatever that they see um, as a change. And I, I think that's right. You know, there was the extraordinary spectacle I think of former Labour ministers. I think a couple of them on election night as television commentators sort of holding forth on all the mistakes that Labour made and what led to them being turfed out and how the leadership was at fault. When you know. <laughs> When they themselves could, you know, you could almost sort of pinpoint drops in polling that were to life, do with their own departure from Life goes through stages. I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, one, one final I think there's point a real lack of self-awareness. You know, if, yeah. if you look at Andrea Vance's um, stories, probably a little premature in terms of why did Labour lose, why did National win, what were the campaigns like? The Labour one was just full of anonymous sort of backbiting. You know, oh, Chris Hipkins is playing too much online Scrabble. And, you know, these things weren't really giving insights into the mechanics of how the campaign failed. They were just showing that people were more focused on their own enemies. Look, it's a human business. And and when it turns, it really turns, Gareth. And this is, you know, the risk for for Labour. You know, we saw in Germany, in Baden-Württemberg, the Greens grew from 11 to outpacing the the Social Democrats there and forming a government in that state. And, you know, the, the risk for Labour is they spend the next year in recriminations, really introspective, sort of low energy. They, we saw the lack of funders, maybe the lack of volunteers, and it does look like the energy, a sort of clear sense of direction and where they stand in the political spectrum and their values and policies, and the sort of increasing campaign sophistication than my time in politics. That's a big factor, and I don't think we fully process yet how outdone they were on that front. And it was those connections, particularly with Australia, where, again, the Australian Greens have been poaching seats off both parties, in fact, but on the back of this formidable electoral mm. uh, election machine, you know, with armies of sort of young voters out door-knocking and leafleting. Look, it's everything from, from putting those um, campaign hoardings up to uh, sophisticated social media outreach as well. It's, it's everything and all. All right, just quickly finish. Um, you mentioned that dinner party last week, Ben. Um, I don't know how much time you want to spend on the tweet that sent everyone into the stratosphere last week, Um, Mr Peter's tweet, which appeared to believe there was a revelation uh, that was actually revealed the day after the mosque attacks. And and, and I know there's been some pushback from that community that this is just not what it needs right now. But um, does it have any impact whatsoever on what's going on at the moment, that, you know, 24-hour or 48-hour X, um, formerly known as Twitter, matter? Winston Peters is constantly reinventing himself in government. Um, You know, you can't ever accuse him of making the same mistake twice uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's the governing arrangements or whether it's how he acts in government. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's all, every time he's been in government, as Gareth alluded to, his party has fallen under the 5% and twice that's meant that they've exited parliament entirely uh, once he held the seat of Tauranga back in 1999 and they, they remained in. 
So he's he's looking for ways to avoid that this time, uh, you know, and part of that might be the governing arrangement, being on the crossbenches, being nominally outside of government, like in two thousand and five. Part of it might be, um, you know, sending signals and sops to uh, what were a significant part of his vote, or at least a significant part of the public that he was appealing to during the campaign, which was people who were susceptible to COVID conspiracies um, and conspiratorial thinking. Um, I think if it has any effect um, on the negotiations, it will be to cause uh, great concern to Christopher Luxon about how he could have somebody like that in a senior ministerial role. Well, I mean, it's absolutely baffling why he raised it at that point, you know, in the negotiations, you know, was it a sense of wanting to inject himself into the public conversation once again? Was it almost this Trumpian sort of personal grievance, which he just wanted to express publicly? Or was it, as sort of Joe Moyer points out in the newsroom, that actually it's a savvy sort of reminder that he has this incredible loud megaphone and the other parties negotiating with him shouldn't forget that uh, effectively. Uh, it's sort of a warning that you know he can grab the, the country's attention. I agree with Ben. You know, he, It's almost throwing some meat to this conspiratorial grab bag of supporters that he got to, to vote from this election. But it's really unclear what is what he hoped to achieve by it. And it was, I mean, it, it has about abs- credibility, to be fair. And it was absolutely <laughs> incorrect. Yeah. You know, it was okay. factually incorrect. All right. We shall ponder further then. Uh, we'll wait for our presence to be opened on Friday and we can find out uh, exactly what that final makeup of numbers is. I thank you both for your time very much. Ben Thomas Gareth Hughes.